If this is your first time listening, I strongly suggest beginning with episode one, A Murder Most Foul. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. The exorcism of Michael Taylor was an eight-hour affair that lasted approximately from midnight to 8 a.m. on the morning of October 6, 1974. For the first few hours, Michael's wife, Christine, was enduring something of an exorcism herself. She was being counseled by the reverend's wives in a private room in the vicarage. The topic of that particular conversation was never made exactly clear. But we can safely assume that the primary purpose of the meeting was to keep Christine in a calm, distracted state, to dispel any lingering sense of unease or mistrust that she was undoubtedly feeling. They needed her to keep it together until the exorcism was completed and she could, hopefully, get her normal husband back. Once it became clear that the group of men tasked with performing the exorcism was in for a tougher battle than they had anticipated, word was sent to Reverend Vincent's wife, Sally, that Christine didn't need to wait at the church any longer. Her children were already safely with the grandparents, and Christine would do well to join them there and get some much-needed rest. It was close to 3 a.m., when Christine left St. Thomas's. This is an important and often overlooked part of the story. There's a strong possibility that, given the chaos of the evening, instructions weren't exactly clear. Whatever the case, Christine Taylor was not joining her children at the in-laws. She was heading home. Upon arriving at home, And with only her beloved poodle for company, Christine made herself a cup of tea before retiring for the evening. She had no way of knowing that it would be her last night in the place she had called home for so many years, where she started a family with the man she loved, where her boys learned to walk and talk, the house where the ups and downs of everyday life protected them from the outside world where she and Michael, as a couple, had first accepted Christ into their lives. While she sipped her tea in the dimly lit front parlor of her humble home, what was she thinking? Was she thinking of her boys as she contemplated a family picture on the mantel? Was she desperate for news of her husband's condition? Or was she, like Michael, exhausted by the whirlwind that had engulfed her life in the weeks and months prior. Perhaps she was hopeful 
that it was all finally coming to an end. From Cavalry Audio, this is The Devil Within. Episode 6. Our little lives are rounded with a sleep. Christine had watched as her husband transformed right before her eyes. The mild-mannered, quiet, loving husband and father she had known for so long was a memory. The man she now recognized as Michael Taylor was a seething, confused, apparent lunatic who had acted in ways so completely out of character that she must have had a difficult time believing any of it could be true. And remember, Christine's transformation was, to a lesser degree, also very dramatic. In an incredibly short period of time, Christine Taylor went from a non-believer to a born-again Christian to a woman who felt comfortable leaving her husband with men who had him restrained while they performed an exorcism on him. Certainly less dramatic than her husband's tragic transformation, but still, Christine said yes to an awful lot of things that would have been a resounding no only weeks earlier. Right around the time Christine was fading off to sleep of her own accord for the final time, A few miles away, her husband was in a fight for his life. Although tortured and debased for hours, Michael remained lucid and alert for the entirety of the exorcism. Michael himself described the events of that night. He's quoted as saying, It was a long night. They danced around me and burned my cross because that was tainted with the evil. They had me in the church all night. Look at my hands. I was banging on the floor. The power was in me. I couldn't get rid of it, and neither could they. They were too late. I was compelled by a force within me to destroy everything living within that house. By 8 a.m., the exorcists were tired, but unwilling to admit defeat. They would reluctantly agree to stop for the time being in order to gather their collective strength. The plan was to give it another go later in the day. Those demons of violence, insanity, and murder had proven to be a recalcitrant lot, and Michael, as he was warned, needed to be very careful. They suspected him of being a danger to himself or others, so much so that they called the police to warn them of a recently exorcised man with terrible spirits of hell still governing his actions. Unsurprisingly, the police dismissed this warning as a prank. At this point, Michael Taylor is emotionally demolished, and his tormentors feel that he may be capable of tremendous violence, so much so that they attempted to warn the authorities. But did they warn his wife? Did anyone warn Christine? Maybe double-check that she's in a safe place while Michael regroups? No. Instead, they drop Michael off at home and go put the kettle on. Within 90 minutes, 
Michael would be discovered by Officer Ian Walker in the streets of Osset. How could they have let this happen? From the information gathered, it's estimated that Michael spent between 45 and 60 minutes inside his house that morning, with the attack on his wife and dog lasting about five of those minutes. Five minutes is an incredibly long time for someone to sustain an act of extreme violence. It's the length of an entire round in a UFC fight. And those fighters are among the most highly trained athletes on the planet. And they're completely spent by the end of every round. Michael was not a trained MMA fighter. He had a bad back. He hadn't worked in months. He wasn't a particularly big or strong man. He wasn't a fighter or an athlete. He didn't exercise regularly or even jog. He had lived a relatively sedentary life in the years leading up to the exorcism. Then he was somehow able to tear a human being apart? What triggered him? It's been speculated that Michael had assumed he would be coming home to an empty house. That his wife would have joined the children at the in-laws when she left the church hours earlier. No one, not Michael, not the priests, not anyone involved with the exorcism, no one knew that Christine had decided to avail herself of the empty house for some undisturbed rest. The wives that dropped Christine off hadn't bothered to let the priests know. No one realized that Michael was being dropped into an impossible situation, primed for murder. Remember, just after the killing, in his first statement to police, he said, they primed me for it. Now put yourself in Michael's shoes. In the midst of a complete mental break, having endured eight straight hours of torture, you're convinced that demons of murder, violence, and insanity are still inside you because your tormentors, who just dropped you off, warned you about it. He had started seeing the devil in everything else outside him, first in Marie and then uh, presumably his wife. I very, very strongly suspect, the Reverend Vincent doesn't exactly say this, but that the spirit of murder still remains inside you. You have also become fairly certain that the cute brunette who runs your church meetings is working for the devil and is probably responsible for your current condition. You walk into an empty house, needing a shower, a nice cup of tea, and some breakfast, in that order. Then a good long nap. You prepare for the shower by taking your clothes off, but just as you're about to finish the job and remove your socks, boom, you're surprised by an unexpected visitor. Now, in Michael's state, it didn't matter that the person, in all likelihood just as shocked as he was, was his wife. It didn't matter at all. Michael didn't trust anyone. Everyone was the enemy, a member of Satan's army. He may have, in fact, mistaken his wife for Marie Robinson. Or perhaps his wife mentioned something about the exorcism and Michael was all too eager to believe that Marie had gotten to her too. 
he felt he needed to destroy the evil that was within her. That's just another way of saying demonic possession. Those are Michael's words. How had he come to believe that his loving wife had been invaded by evil? Michael told the police that he needed to destroy everything living in that house. Even the poodle was a target. Did Michael get spooked by the dog? Did he project satanic iconography onto Christine's poodle, and that's what pushed him over the edge? Whatever the case, Michael degenerated into a beastly shell of the man he once was. More of The Devil Within, after the break. Everything that Michael had been through during the previous years, months, days, and hours, all of the lingering anxiety, all of the pressures of marriage and parenthood, the unemployment, the chronic back pain, the lowest of lows. And then, suddenly, the highest of highs, new friends and commitments, spiritual purpose, communion with the Lord, and love a newfound romantic passion that would suddenly and publicly be reduced to a single moment of abject shame. Then the emotional degeneration, the mental fracture leaning towards full-blown collapse, followed by the news that dozens of demons had taken over his body, coupled with his newly formed belief that the unrequited object of his affection was herself a Satanist and primarily responsible for his condition. And everyone was a possible victim, including his own wife. It can be argued that Michael reacted with violence rather than snapped and started killing everything he saw. How could he have been anything other than completely on the defensive and wary of anyone claiming to have his best interests in mind. He had just been tortured for eight hours, humiliated and debased on the grounds of the church, most likely in the same room where he was baptized not that long before, in full view of the Savior. It was as if Reverend Vincent and Marie Robinson constructed a bomb worthy of the IRA, lit the fuse, and threw it into the window of Michael's house right at the feet of his sweet wife, Christine. Like the Guilford pub bombings to the south on the very same evening, this explosion came with no warning. But people should have known it was coming. Only Christine was at home, and they dropped Michael off. And that was the last time that anybody apart from Michael saw Christine alive. I suppose in one sense... The Reverend Vincent was right. The spirit of murder was within Michael, if you want to put it in that sense. Another way of putting it would be that this was a man who had been driven to insanity. He was now violently insane. And the next time anyone saw Michael was later that morning. Michael was arrested naked and... He was covered head to toe in blood. He was stopped by the police and he was screaming that it was he was covered in the blood of the devil. 
And when the police went to his home to find out what had happened, they found uh, Christine's body in the house. Christine and her dog. Uh, Michael had... Michael had literally torn them apart with his bare hands. He had he had gouged out Christine's eyes. He had removed her tongue with his bare hands, according to the inquest later. I, I mean, the, the strength and violence of what must have occurred is, is quite extraordinary. He had killed the dog, broken it and ripped it in apart, and had smashed up the, the, the house. And um, it was a horrendous, horrendous sight. He'd killed his wife with his bare hands in the most brutal circumstances. So yes, I suppose the Reverend Vincent was right. He had left unfinished work. I don't even like to think about it. The 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 sustained level of violence. I think that's it. It's not. You can just about imagine some a, a moment of madness, but you can't physically. It must have been a sustained level of insane violence. And yes, the police could not conceive of how somebody had done it with their bare hands. Michael was arrested later that day while he was recovering in a local hospital. He let investigators know exactly what had transpired over the previous weeks and who they should talk to. Michael was still of the belief that Marie Robinson was in league with Satan. And Reverend Vincent's wife, Sally, would actually make a statement to police and the local press that echoed that belief. But not in open court. The local police had never dealt with anything like this. It was obvious that Michael Taylor was the person responsible for the murder of Christine Taylor. He never denied it, and he never attempted to cover it up. The fact that he was clearly so disturbed at that point that he, he was walking around the streets of his local town covered head to foot as if somebody had thrown paint over him in blood, naked, apart from his socks. This wasn't a crime of passion that needs to be covered up, a considered act or anything like that. He was, were proof needed. What, what that shows, I think, is you're dealing with somebody who, who had, was no longer in control of his faculties. And crucially, what he told the police officers on the scene, which is that he was covered in the blood of Satan. The idea that something greater was at play, not in the supernatural sense, but that there may have been other people behind the scenes pulling the strings, first started at the mention of the blood of Satan. Extreme religious beliefs connected to violence don't happen in a vacuum. Someone had, as Michael pointed out, primed him. But who? That question would linger as the immediate fate of Michael Taylor was adjudicated. And it didn't take long. Yes, the only question was, was Michael insane or not? And in the UK, Broadmoor is the highest security prison for prisoners who are um, mentally disturbed. So you wouldn't be sent there if you were, you know, murdered your wife for money. You, you, it's where like the Yorkshire Ripper and, and people like that were housed. In other words, people who, who are violently insane and who've committed terrible crimes, you, you get sent to Broadmoor. And that's where Michael ended up going. So he was declared insane. 
and therefore he didn't receive the, the sentence that a, a sane murderer would, would receive. But he was sent to Broadmoor under observation. Broadmoor Psychiatric Hospital opened in 1863. The original buildings sat on 53 acres of beautiful rolling hills and lush forests in southern England. But it wasn't called the Broadmoor Psychiatric Hospital back then. It was the Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum. Many of the early guests of the asylum were poor Londoners driven insane by the effects of congenital syphilis. Those effects were peculiar in that they often resulted in acts of incredible violence. While the ailments of the patients at the facility would remain constant throughout the years, over time, the name of the facility itself would change. More than once, as the UK and perhaps the world learned more about mental illness itself. By 1919, it was the Broadmoor Hospital for Mental Defects. Not a huge improvement over criminal lunatic, but we're getting there. It was also in that year, 1919, that a portion of the hospital was used to house World War I German prisoners of war, suffering from battlefield psychosis or combat stress reaction. Over the last 150 years, the hospital was notorious for having housed the most extreme cases of the criminally insane in the UK. Many residents would never see the outside world again, while others responded well to treatment and would be permitted to rejoin society. More after the break. By the time Michael Taylor was counted among its residents in 1974, the facility had once again changed its name to the Broadmoor Psychiatric Hospital, which remains the name to this day. The following is from a BBC documentary released in 2017. Broadmoor, a word that makes people shiver. Most think of Broadmoor as a prison. In fact, it's a high-secure psychiatric hospital and home to some of the country's most dangerous and violent offenders. The easiest reaction in the world is to see somebody that has committed something atrocious, label them as evil, want to lock the door and throw away the key. So Michael Taylor is safely in Broadmoor, undergoing much-needed psychiatric treatment. The question would now turn to who else would be held responsible for the murder of Christine Taylor. The judge at his trial ordered an in a further inquest to be taken. Because if Michael wasn't responsible for Christine's murder, somebody clearly was. And under UK law, and I'm sure American as well, culpability had to be explored. And so the judge ordered an inquest, which took place in April, I believe, of 1975. So we're talking about sort of seven, eight months later. And that's where a lot of the information about the case comes from, because that's when the Reverend Vincent was called back to the stand because his involvement, and there was some talk at the time as, as to, was the Reverend Vincent really the murderer? Did Peter Vincent kill Christine Taylor? The Reverend Peter Vincent's defense was a simple one. Michael Taylor was obviously possessed by a demon. I mean, just look at what he did to his poor wife and dog. No one who isn't being controlled by evil spirits would ever do such a thing. Trust me, he said, 
I'm an expert. I've done tons of these exorcisms, and my only failing here is that I didn't finish the job. I fully intended to, but we all got tired. We knew he was dangerous and a threat to the public health, as evidenced by the call we made to the police. We just needed some rest. But we were fully committed to finishing the job. Under questioning, though, it was impossible to avoid one simple fact. The only thing that had changed in Michael's life of any substance whatsoever in the previous six months was his involvement with religion. Lawyers for Michael Taylor made the following closing argument. Quote, Let those who are truly responsible for the killing stand up. We submit that Taylor is a mere cipher. The real guilt lies elsewhere. Religion is the key. Those who have been referred to in evidence, and those clerics in particular, should be with him in spirit now, in this building, and each day he is incarcerated in Broadmoor. And, not least, on the day he must endure the bitter reunion with his five motherless children. End quote. In the book, The Sussex Devils, Mark Heal wrote that the church group was likened to a cult, which indoctrinated a vulnerable man and aggravated his already existing mental health issues. And another lawyer is reported to have declared that, quote, it is a thousand pities that all those assembled in the vicarage at that time did not at once, on that Saturday evening, summon medical aid. The chances are that the tragedy that ensued could have been averted, end quote. But, as was brilliantly summed up by counsel, what they had was neurotics feeding neuroses to a neurotic, plus a forensic psychiatrist who took the stand in Michael's defense, claimed the exorcism that took place on the evening prior to the attack was entirely related to Michael Taylor's, quote, trance state and the eventual killing of his wife. The attorney questioning the doctor pressed him a bit on this. In other words, doctor, it caused it. It caused it. The doctor's response? Yes. Okay, so let's get to it. Who went to the slammer? Who from Team Exorcist got a one-way ticket to the Gray Bar Motel. Probably all of them, right? Actually, none of them. The church was divided into those who felt that Vincent especially had acted abominably and that, wittingly or not, caused this to happen. But the evangelical and charismatic communities saw it quite differently, and I, and I think still would. They would say, well... The Reverend did his best, but here was a man who was possessed. And, and you know, the, you can't blame a man for, you know, trying his hardest and not succeeding to cast out what appeared to be the toughest demon of them all. Full power to his arm for achieving so much. But in the end, Michael Taylor clearly was possessed. And, and, the, and the proof is in the actions that he took. Does a man who is not possessed by the devil tear out his wife's tongue and gouge out her eyes? No. 
yes, he went for a cup of tea and got Michael off home. And so I guess that the highest charge that could be levelled at Peter Vincent is one of careless forgetfulness, carelessness. But 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 effectively, his his motives were excellent. His achievements were substantial. He just didn't finish the job. Fell a little bit short. That's right. None of the people involved with the exorcism of Michael Taylor faced any sort of legal consequences whatsoever. And what's more, the Reverend Vincent, the captain of Team Exorcist, so to speak, was actually looking for a pat on the back because, well, it could have been much worse, right? How about a thank you for the other 40-plus demons that he successfully exorcised? Sure, he never quite got to the troublemaker, but then probably no one could have. Michael Taylor was possessed by the devil. That's why he did what he did. That was identified by a reputable priest with an exper- highly experienced exorcist beforehand who said exactly, yes, I feared this would happen. But the worst you can say is that the Reverend left the job undone, but basically that's what happened. Michael Taylor was possessed by the devil. And especially because, and to go back on this, the, the Reverend Vincent was unashamed about this. He said we were very tired, we wanted a cup of tea, and we knew we'd left, we knew we'd left the, the demon of murder inside him. Dereliction of duty. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm no lawyer, but I mean, one could easily see how some kind of you know a criminal case could be made with that kind of confession. In the event, it wasn't. The inquest explored it fully. The Reverend Vincent was admirably frank about the process and the information which we've been giving you about is the Reverend Vincent's own words. And uh, the one thing I, the one accusation I would not level at the Reverend. Peter Vincent is that he, in any sense, tried to cover up or uh, mollify uh, his actions. He, He was completely unashamed. In fact, Reverend Peter Vincent was promoted by St. Thomas's and awarded a tenured position within the Anglican Church. It's not clear if this was unfortunate timing for a promotion that had already been scheduled or a reward for his work on the Taylor case. The Reverend Peter Vincent lived a long and fruitful life, spreading the word of God to all who would listen. He died peacefully in his sleep in the spring of 2017, well into his 90th year. For Marie Robinson, it's been reported that she returned to a previous position in the Transportation Department of the Yorkshire County government. An anonymous, quiet existence, far from the lights of a very public inquest, that revolved around a man she recruited into the church and his murdered wife, who, for a time, felt betrayed by her. It was widely believed that Marie Robinson, like Michael Taylor, left the church entirely. There were unsubstantiated reports that Marie left for America while she was still young enough to start over. She would be in her 70s by now. Nothing is known about the fates of the Taylor children and no attempt was made to contact them. Michael Taylor, for his part, spent two years in Broadmoor before being reevaluated and found to be completely sane. He was sent to a lower security facility for an additional two years before being granted his full release. By all accounts, the ensuing years were difficult for Michael no doubt burdened by his horrific actions. It seems that he was left broken by the events that occurred during his time with Marie Robinson, Reverend Vincent, 
the Fellowship Group, and St. Thomas's. We know of at least four suicide attempts by Michael. He made one last unfortunate appearance in the criminal justice system of Yorkshire County. In 2005, when he was in his early 60s, Michael was arrested and convicted of inappropriate sexual contact with a teenage girl. He pled to two counts of sexual assault and spent a week in jail. While in custody, he began to exhibit the same erratic behavior that preceded his attack on his wife. He was again sent to Broadmoor for evaluation. After his release, he has stayed completely out of the public eye. After years of Reverend Vincent preaching the word of God in and around Northern England, he retired with his wife of more than 50 years to a home in the country. While working on his memoirs, he was asked if he recalled, during his time in St. Thomas's, the Michael Taylor case. Of course, he replied. He was then asked if he had any feelings of remorse about what had befallen Michael's wife, Christine, and the terrible burden that Michael himself had been forced to bear for the remainder of his life. Without a thought, the mere suggestion was dismissed out of hand. Oh no, not at all, he said. Because I know that God will find a way to bring good out of this event. And therefore, I don't regret anything. The Devil Within Season 2, The Demons of Yorkshire, is a Cavalry Audio production. Produced by Brandon Morgan and Zach McNeese. Zach also edited and mixed all episodes. Music by Soundstripe and Blue Dot Sessions. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. I'm Brandon Morgan, your writer and narrator. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.